Welcome to the Comfortably Hungry podcast, where yesterday's dinner is tomorrow's history. If you're a peckish person who is curious about the history of food and drink, then you're in the right place. I'm Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer and cook, and each season I will be joined by some hungry guests to discuss a variety of topics centred around a specific theme. As a former subclub host, I'm always intrigued to know what people like to eat. So to whet everyone's appetites, I've invited my guests to contribute a dish to the season's virtual potluck supper inspired by today's topic. Now this happens to be the first time I've hosted a podcast, so be kind. To be on the safe side, I've chosen a subject close to my heart for this pilot episode. Today, we will be discussing gingerbread, which as some of you will know was the subject of my first book, First Catch Your Gingerbread, published in 2020. Assisting me on this initial foray into podcast land is fellow food historian, podcaster and author of A Dark History of Sugar, Dr. Neil Buttery. Joining us is Dr. Alessandra Pino, writer and researcher on how cultural memory, food and the Gothic intersect and co-author of a Gothic cookbook, which will be released in 2023. Welcome to the podcast, Neil and Ali. I hope you're both feeling comfortably hungry today. More than comfortably hungry, I'd say. I'm always hungry, Sam. So why gingerbread? Well, for me, gingerbread encapsulates all the decadence and deliciousness of spices. It has been consumed in this country in one form or other since at least the 15th century, if not earlier. One of the earliest recorded recipes for gingerbread contains honey, breadcrumbs, saffron, pepper and cinnamon, although curiously no ginger. It was originally served as a sweetmeat as part of a course known as the banquet served at the end of a meal in very wealthy households. It became customary to buy gingerbread at fairs, leading it to be dubbed a fairing. Over time, the original honeyed spice breadcrumb recipe has morphed into the more familiar cakes and biscuits we know today. One of the things that saw gingerbread becoming more accessible to the masses was the use of sugar, or more specifically treacle or molasses, in place of honey, something today's guests are very familiar with. Uh, Neil, most people listening to this podcast will probably have some inkling of sugar's wretched past, but can you tell us a few sentences, uh, in, well, in a few sentences, is what is it exactly that makes it particularly dark? Oh, gosh. Um, well, it would be easier to say in the ways it isn't dark <laughs> because there's so much darkness to it. Uh, well, I suppose the the underlying problem with sugar, I suppose, is exploitation. Um, exploitation of workers, because, you know, it, it propped up the slave trade and the slave trade propped up sugar production for centuries. And that's what people automatically think of, maybe, when they think about the history of sugar and sugar production. But exploitation just carried on after slavery and it still carries on on now. So I guess that's one theme. But then there's the exploitation of consumers, you know, with targeted advertising and i guess that's more modern i suppose um you know selling low nutrient foods with large amounts of calories in them for next to nothing getting us all hooked i suppose yeah exploitation of consumers and the producers and ali your doctorate centers on sugar as well i believe or one of the aspects centers on sugar can you tell me a bit more about your own research in this area Yes, my doctorate did centre on um, the research around sugar plantations in Cuba. And um, 
it led to a memory theory, a cultural memory theory that I actually named dark food. So totally independently from Neil's research, but it just shows, I think, how interestingly there is an awareness that is leading to an investigation into um, the more hidden side of food production and how that affects our perception of it. So dark food basically can be understood as the role of food in relation to memories that perpetually recreate narratives of violence. And so in the sugar plantations, obviously, um, there was a lot of violence. Um, and so this is a notion which is specifically linked to colonialism and its role hmm. in the creation of the plantation economy. I think one of the things that um, that I think makes a proper gingerbread, for example, is the use of treacle, which uh, is, has been around in various forms for centuries. Uh, but it obviously provides for me that stickiness and that depth of flavour that you don't really get from white fat, uh, white sugar or uh, golden syrup. Neil, can you explain a little bit about how treacle's actually made? Yeah, treacle is a byproduct of the sugar making process. Uh, essentially, what happens, I mean, it's all very efficient today. I kind of know the historical <laughs> methods, <laughs> um, but the principle's the same today. Essentially, you have to boil all the water out of sugarcane syrup until you get a thick, sticky, dark, well, treacly looking mass. I was, uh, it looks a bit like you, know, you see um, glass blowers handling their molten glass it's a bit like that except except darker what happens is you somehow without injuring yourself get get that gloopy black syrup into well what looks like an upturned um traffic cone <laughs> that gets poured in and very slowly over time uh, over maybe space of maybe two days two or three days the molasses which is liquid the masses or treacle, same, it's the same thing, begins to trickle out the bottom, leaving behind, I guess, golden, what we would call today golden casca, or, well, golden sugar, not quite perfectly refined. And out of the bottom, you've got your molasses or treacle, um, which originally was fed to slaves, uh, and then it was made into rum. But of course, eventually, you know, we in the UK got a taste for it too. So just to clarify, there's, there's no difference between molasses and treacle. I've, I've heard people mm -hmm. ask me this on a regular basis, but it, mm -hmm. there's no difference. They are essentially the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I lived in the US a couple of years. I'd say the only difference is, and I don't know why, I guess it must be something to do with the differences in um, the, the details in, in making sugar. Molasses is runnier. Oh, okay. It's still pretty, it's still pretty gloopy, but it's, it's not as gloopy. But apart, apart from that, as far as I can see, you can swap the two gram for gram, mill for mill in recipes and not have to worry. Well, that's good to know. That's uh, certainly. So, Ali, when did treacle really become an important part of the British diet then? Well, black treacle um, has been traded in the UK market since the 1600s, but it was only really in the 18th and 19th centuries that it started to take hold in British life. Um and that's probably because sugar had become Britain's most valuable import by this time. So it, from being used as an antidote for poison in the 17th century, then popped up in gingerbread recipes in the mid-18th century. Um, and I think the 19th, 19th century trade introduced a type of trade that was uh, bulkier and it was like cheap commodities and it shaped the lives of um, ordinary people, peasants and tenant farmers, and therefore it had an effect on 
the economy in a different way and it trickled down to um, people's houses where they were making um, more sweets, puddings and cakes using treacle on, on an everyday basis. Well, I don't think every day, actually. <laughs> in my house, probably. <laughs> so, I mean, it should be said that even in Britain, there are significant regional differences between gingerbreads. And one in particular springs to mind, and that is particularly relevant today because it's the 5th of November in the UK, which is also known as Bonfire Night. Uh, for those listeners who are not from the UK, today is the anniversary of the gunpowder plot when Guy Fawkes and his motley crew attempted to assassinate King James I by blowing up Parliament in 1605. Fortunately, for James, the plot was thwarted by, um, but the Brits still commemorate this act of high treason by setting off fireworks and burning effigies of Fawkes and other unpopular figures such as politicians and the occasional US president in towns like Lewis, <laughs> close to where I live in Sussex. Um, but in the north of England, it's traditional to eat a particular type of gingerbread on this day known as Parkin. Now, Neil, I know from your blog, you're a big fan of Parkin. Can you yes. can you explain to us what it is and why it's different from other gingerbreads? Well, I guess the thing that makes parking distinctive from other gingerbreads is that it was it's a cakey form, I suppose, of gingerbread rather than a biscuity gingerbread like what maybe you get a grass meal, you know, like a ginger nut or mm. a gingerbread man. It's not that kind of gingerbread. Um, it has to contain oats. Now, traditionally, if you go back. It's entirely made from oats. Today, it's made with a mixture of oats and flour. Um, but there's treacle in there. There's golden syrup. And not just plenty of ginger, but other mixed spice, especially um, nutmeg. Oh, so it's very sticky. Um, it's one of those cakes where you have to, or you should anyway, make it a good five or six days before you want to eat it because of the large amount of treacly uh, ingredients, you know, it just gets squidgier and squidgier. Um, it has to, be, I would say, it has to be made with medium oatmeal, not porridge oats. Okay. You want the nutty kind of chewy bits of the, because, well, I think I'm right here. But when you buy oatmeal, it's the whole grain that's been chopped up, whereas porridge oats, it's not whole grain. The outer bit of the grain's been taken off, and then they're steamed and pressed. So you don't get the nuttiness and, you know, the fibre, which would make it healthy. Because what I always think is, if it's got whole oats in it, that means it's healthy. Ignoring the fact it's got a whole block of butter and probably a whole jar of treacle in it. Oh, of course, of course. They, they, the oats cancel out all the eels that you get with the uh, butter and the sugar, obviously. Everybody knows exactly. that. Exactly, yeah. So I suppose if you go back into time, it was all oats because that was very common in north of England. It's, it's, it's definitely a northern English foodstuff. And then as wheat became more available, you know, so it, you know, some wheat was in there to make it a bit fluffier. I know um, recipes I found from um, for parking style gingerbreads from sort of the 18th and 19th century feature oats and no flour. Um, but we will come back mm. to that in a moment. Okay. So why is it particularly associated with Bonfire Night? I know I realise that we should have probably been airing this podcast way before Bonfire Night so people could let their parking develop a wonderful <laughs> sticky flavour, uh, sticky texture. But why is it associated with the 5th of November? 
Well, so good question. I mean, I don't know is the short answer, but I'm going to elaborate. <laughs> I'll try to. <laughs> um, well, it's associated with autumn time. So it's not just Eton, certainly in Yorkshire anyway, it's not just Eton and Bonfire Night. I think it's just one of those autumn foods that, um, well, okay, well, so first of all, oats and treacle, cheap ingredients. So it's it's a filling treat. Um, treacle and golden syrup crop up a lot in other, ta- in other things at this time. So toffee apples are also something popular around this time. So it's bonfire toffee, that treacle-flavoured toffee. So it was. I think it was eaten much more often than just bonfire night. I think it was a general autumnal thing. But for some reason, obviously we've lost a lot of our sort of food traditions and our food memories. I think it's just hung on around bonfire night, which is possibly not a satisfying answer. <laughs> but that's that, that's what I suspect is going on. Now, I know on your blog you have a wonderful story about the knucker. Is that correct, mm-hmm. pronunciation? And that's, I think so. Um, can you tell the listeners a bit more about that? Well, a knucker is a dragon, another name for a dragon. And there is a bit of folklore, which, um, well... <laughs> It kind of happens in various places around the country, depending what story you're reading. <laughs> um, but yes, there was a dragon in a place called Nooker Hole, which just means dragon's hole. Um, and it was very troublesome, causing lots of bother, eating all the children and the virgins, you know, which you don't want. <laughs> not really. Um, not really. Um, there's a young chap called Jim. They're always called Jim, the heroes. Jim and Jack are the heroes in these, these old stories. He has the fantastic idea of bringing the dragon a big old load of parking uh, to feed it. Gives it a little bit and he gets a taste for it and he really wants more. So he says, OK, well, I'm going to go back home, bring more. Brings basically a cartload of, of parking with him. The dragon fills, you know, fills his stomach. And as we all know, when we eat these things, they carry on swelling a bit. And the poor old dragon's suffering from his overeating. And uh, Jack, Jack sneaks in there with a sword or an axe as the, as the poor old dragon's in a, in a carp coma <laughs> and, and, kill, and kills it. <laughs> Greediness is our downfall, I suppose, is the moral of the story. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not sure that's a great advertisement for parking, but uh, although maybe it's, a de- maybe it's the deliciousness of it. That, that's what the dragon Everything in moderation, it. exactly. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> So anyone who thinks that the battle between the Lancastrians and the Yorkists ended with Henry Tudor's defeat of Richard III in 1485 is um, sadly mistaken because the debate rages on in gingerbread form, I understand. Both Yorkshire and Lancashire lay claim to parking recipes. But what's the difference between the two, Neil? Do we know? Well, I think you probably know more about this than me, Sam. I think that Lancashire... Parking doesn't have oats. Okay. Therefore, is not parking. I think I, I have a Lancashire parking. <laughs> well, that's controversial. I have a Lancashire parking in my book, First Catch of Gingerbread, and I th- I think that's got both oats and um, flour in. But you're right; it doesn't. It's not exclusively oats. I do have other recipes in the book that are pure oat-based parkings. So, um, Ali, are you a fan of parking? Oh, I love it. I love 
I love it when it's not too sweet. I don't know if it's to do with just my taste buds, but I'm not um, a fan of yeah gingerbread when it's too sweet. And I eat it all year round, not just for Christmas holidays. I don't know about you guys. Um, but my like, my consumption of it intensifies around about this period up until after Christmas. I think it's definitely, I think generally spice foods are sort of, I think because they're warming, they're associated with the autumn and winter, aren't they? Um, do we yeah. know how old parking recipes are, for example, Neil? Have you got any idea on that or...? Well, they can't be that old. It's one of the things that you maybe think, oh, he's been eaten for centuries and centuries, going back to the year dot. But of course, treacle's only been available as a cheap ingredient for only, a, you know, 250 years or something. So I guess it's not, I bet it's not that old. My guess, 1850? Oh, okay. That's my guess. Yeah, I think, I mean, I kept to come across some recipes from the 18th and 19th century, but I, I, they're not necessarily readily recognisable as what we would consider, I think, today as parking, um, that, mm. not that cakey substance. So, yeah, I'd accept that. So, Ali, um, given that what I would call old school gingerbread is dark, dense and sticky, it strikes me that it's the epitome of gothic food. And you'll have to forgive my ignorance here because it probably isn't. But I, that's, to me, it, it strikes me that it would be a perfect example of a gothic food. So can you explain to me exactly what does make a food gothic? Um, that's my favourite question, Sam. <laughs> uh, I guess the gothic says really in literature you can't trust what you see um and so food in the gothic is a way for the text to signal to us you need to read beyond what you see on your plate so don't trust what you see and the food provides a subtext that can give some clues on to how things might develop in the shadows it allows us to see some of the cracks and some of the fractures that lie beneath um, social propriety um, so some examples are, for example, in Dracula, um, when Jonathan Harker is approaching Dracula's castle, he's eating more and more paprika and he has some wild dreams and he thinks it's to do with the spices. It's actually because he's, ne- he's nearing Dracula's castle and we as a reader know this and we associate the food to this impending doom. So it's kind of preparing us for what's to come. And I think that's what Gothic food is. It's preparation for the darkness that lies a little bit beyond what we can immediately see or read. Um, So um, in a way, it's not really to do with what it looks like to answer your question, but more about the feeling that it gives us. Ah, And how does that translate to gingerbread? Because I noticed there was a gingerbread recipe in in the Gothic cookbook, which is out next year, isn't it? Um, It is, it is out next year. So we have a gingerbread recipe in um, Rebecca, the Rebecca chapter. So Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. And um, this story is very much about um, a lady who is trying to fit in in a social context where she doesn't really belong. And she's in this big old house in Mandalay. And she's trying to be the lady of the house. And at every hour, there are some things that she needs to do when it comes to food. And one of these is obviously to be part of tea time around 4.30, so every day. And she hates this. She finds it extremely oppressive and she hates the whole kind of um, 
situation and having to be there, having to serve the tea or even sit down while other people are serving the tea. Uh, she wants to be outside under a tree. And she mentions, mentions this chestnut tree that she, she loves to be under. And instead, she has to be inside this living room and um, eating gingerbread. <laughs> so we decided to recreate this recipe. We looked at some old Victorian recipes as well. And um, I think what makes it gothic is that we associate cakes, desserts and treats uh, to things which we are, that fill us with joy, kind of moments where we bond around a table and we're together and we're communicating and we're joking. And this is not the case for the second Mrs. De Winter, who is the lady I talk about in this, in this book. Uh, in fact, she feels attacked by tea time and she talks about you know, the monstrous silver teapot and the kettle um, and obviously the gingerbread. She calls it a very special gingerbread. So in our recipe, we added some rum to make it extra special. Oh, you can't beat rum and gingerbread, actually. There's a, um, a recipe uh, in my book which is supposed to be an old Dickens family recipe. And that has a, quite a ridiculous amount of rum in it. So, but it's gorgeous. It's, yeah. <laughs> it does. It goes really well together. Yeah. I suppose it's eaten in in the autumn time when it's darker. And f- from from me, I, I can't speak for people from any other region of the country, but um, you know, because pumpkin is eaten basically all the way through autumn. I I kind of associate it with Halloween as well. Is there any other particular time of year that we associate gingerbread with? Well, Christmas, I suppose, because it used to be, uh, I mean, I might get a couple of these details wrong, <laughs> but weren't those um, gingerbread figures made, you know, in those wooden moulds yes. that were sometimes turned out and decorated with a bit of, I don't know, sugar work. Um, and that kind of goes right back to maybe... Um, Tudory times? I might be mixing it up with March pain a little bit. So what do we make of the edible house in Hansel and Gretel? Is that quite gothic, Ali? That is quite gothic. You know what's gothic about that? But um, I think the most gothic thing, yeah, aside from all the kind of luring children with sugar, um, I was looking into um, researching this, um, I don't know if it's a legend or anyway, St Catherine in Canada used to lure children into school um, by giving them sugar. Um, But the fact that we associate sweetness with some sort of reward and that we use that to attract people who are more vulnerable and uh, essentially kill them, yeah, that's quite gothic, yeah. (laughs) It's it's a pretty dark story. I mean, to be fair, all these old stories are the fairy tales. A lot of you get down to past the sort of the disnification of them. Um, They are... Uh, pretty grim it does make me smile that even Hansel and Gretel has sort of been embellished somewhat because the original house was bread and um, I think sugar pane windows and the walls were made from bread and I, I think the t- roof tiles may have been made from cake but there's no mention of gingerbread so all these wonderful um, gingerbread houses Hansel and Gretel houses you do see at Christmas time are um, completely inaccurate. Sorry, Sam, I just wanted to say there is something gothic about that, like in the sense of having these scary feelings um, because obviously people are luring kids in and, um, you know, it creates a sense of dread um, just from that association of like something which should be sweet and actually turns out to be quite deadly. 
but also what's gothic in when it comes to I think the, the whole gingerbread situation is that um, in the Victorian recipes where the, at that time sugar was coming from the West Indies and the spices were coming from the East Indies so it was quite an international cake really and yet how British um, and the fact that people would forget that and just associate it with being extremely British is in itself I find quite a scary fact um, kind of forgetting the whole colonial past and severing ties with how it was produced that in itself is the darkness and also kind of rooted in the gothic food aspect I think yeah I think you're right Ali um, you know it's that kind of thing where it's not questioning where the food's coming from and just taking it all for granted but then there's a huge amount I guess which is dark is that those people trading it or sourcing it you know are brushing the dark things under the carpet and maybe selling something as some amazing exotic thing you know like for example um the only way i can think of is cinnamon you know people you say oh this is this was stolen from the a nest of a magical bird who made a, the nest out of these sticks, you know, when really what was probably happening, you know, they were probably just nicking them from the poor old, I don't know where cinnamon comes from, but whoever, you know, wherever it was from, yeah. oh, they were giving them a sore deal and there'd been probably some exploitation somewhere down the line. And, you know, they're just selling this nice story that, that yeah. essentially covers it all up and people go, oh, that's nice. And don't question it any further. Yeah, and we kind of need that story in order to, I mean, even nowadays with other things to do with, for instance, meat production, um, we need a story in order to really disassociate ourselves from um, how that was produced um, in order to make it palatable. Because it might not, if we are there in the slaughter room, it might not, if we're there on the plantation, that that cake might not have the same taste. And I think essentially that's what's quite um, dark and about it. Yes. Moving on to perhaps as a lighter part of the podcast, the fa- my favourite bit, because this is where I like to find out exactly what my guests would bring to our virtual potluck supper. Um, I have to admit that today's theme doesn't leave much more room for manoeuvre, or does it? So, um, Neil, can you tell me what you mm-hmm. would bring to our virtual feast? Well, I would bring... Um, sorry to bang on about parking, but I would bring parking ice cream. Ah, interesting. Yeah, and what? Um, uh, and why parking ice cream? Well, I'm not one to blow my own horn, but I am going to. So back in the days when I used to do a certain amount of personal chefing, um, I would do dinner parties, and quite often I'd be given a brief. Or I would um, ask the people to give me a brief because otherwise you just, you could do anything. So it's good to have, you know, a few restrictions. And they said, oh, okay, can we have a course to represent where each guest is from regionally? And there was somebody from Yorkshire. So the dessert was parking ice cream. So have you, have you heard of brown bread ice cream? Yes. Yeah. It's made from stale breadcrumbs. Um, butter and sugar and you essentially fry them quite slowly in, in, in a frying pan until it all goes super um, crispy and crunchy and then you, you make some vanilla ice creams I think it's just vanilla ice cream anyway and then just before it's finished churning 
you throw in the nice crunchy bits of, of bread in there. And it's a delicious ice cream. Brown bread ice cream makes it sound really horrible and boring, but it's really nice. So I applied that to um, so, to parking. So I broke the parking up and fried it in, in butter till it went crispy with even more sugar. I think I used demerara sugar so there'd be a sugar crunch. And then mixed that into some ginger ice cream that had some stem ginger in it. And I was very, pl- I was very pleased with myself when I came up with that idea. <laughs> I have to ask, what, what were the other dishes that you made or can you not remember for this particular? Oh, well, somebody was from Lancashire and I did um, a thing called tripe wiggle, which is... Um... <laughs> not selling it to me. It was basically tripe and prawns. I'm not sure if the addition of prawns make it better or worse, but there you go. Um, I can't remember anything else from that no. meal, to be honest. Tripe wiggle. Well, I know who to call if we do. Uh, I, I do one on awful. That's for sure. So, Ali, what do you think of mm-hmm. parking ice cream? Do you think that sounds good? I think that sounds wonderful. I hadn't thought of that at all. It just shows how boring I am because I was just going to bring a, a gingerbread cake which I actually made. Yeah. Well, so um, I feel like I should have been, I don't know, I should have done something a bit more original. So is this the gingerbread cake that's featured in the book with the rum? It's, in, uh, it's the one in the gothic cookbook, yes. So, um, yeah, so that's that's why I made it as well. Well, I... Um, and it's really delicious. I think you can never have enough um, ginger on the table, so or gingerbread. So I think your ginger cake with Neil's parking ice cream would be uh, perfect. Um, I'm just going to throw into the mix uh, that I would probably bring some potted mackerel and you're going to sit there thinking that I've gone mad because potted mackerel has no gingerbread in it. But I'm I, I'm on a crusade to get people to eat gingerbread with savoury things. And actually, if you make something like a ginger biscuit, particularly a parking biscuit um, mm-hmm. with oats in it, it goes really well with a rich mackerel. So that's what I would suggest Ooh. bringing. Um, certainly, uh, and uh, also cheese. I mean, you could serve parking with cheese. I'm sure it's, it's. I know you eat pepper cake in Yorkshire, don't you, at Christmas, with which is a type of gingerbread with Wensleydale. But yeah, gingerbread and cheese. Yeah, Christmas Christmas cake and cheese. It's a thing in, in Yorkshire, which a lot of people can't even believe is a thing. So yeah, I, gingerbread definitely be good with cheese yeah it is it's yeah that's my my one thing i always say to people if you you want to try gingerbread with something savory cheese failing that potted mackerel definitely Hmm. i've never thought of potted mackerel so that's a good one where can our listeners find out more about your book neil a dark history of sugar dark history of sugar well anywhere you can buy books Hopefully, um, or it's published by Pen and Sword History, so you can also get it straight from the publisher. But yeah, w- widely available. And you also have a podcast. Where can people download your podcast or listen to your podcast? Yeah, it's called the British Food History Podcast, which has took me ages to think of that name. And um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's on all platforms. It's uh, yeah. So you should you should just be able to search it in Spotify or Apple or just into Google and it should be the first thing that pops up. Excellent. And Ali, the Gothic cookbook will be released autumn next year, is that correct? Yes, so it will. It should be released in autumn 2023 and it can be pre-ordered at the moment 
by going on the Unbound website and just typing in a Gothic cookbook. Wonderful. Oh, we shall look forward to it. I've, I've already pre-ordered my copy and uh, I'm waiting eagerly to get my hands on it. Hurrah! I managed to get through my first podcast without any drama. Thanks to Neil and Ali for helping me today and for giving me an excuse to talk about one of my favourite subjects. You can find links to Neil and Ali's books and websites in the show notes. Also, do check out Neil's fabulous podcast on British food history and especially the episodes he recorded with myself and Ali. And thank you for listening to this pilot episode. If you enjoyed it, please let me know on Twitter at SJFBilton or Instagram at Mrs. Bilton. That's with two S's. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. I'm off now to research and record more podcasts for Comfortably Hungry, but we'll be returning soon with some delicious morsels provided by my guests. This podcast was created, researched, produced and recorded and edited by me, Sam Bilton, with music and sound effects provided by zapsplat.com.